Another great episode of Mystery of Parenthood coming up. If you like what you hear, go to redsearadio.org, click on the donate button, and become a monthly sustaining member. Please support us. Thank you, and God bless. Searching for clues to discover God's mysterious plan for your family? Then don't change that dial. Join us now in our discussion of the mystery of parenthood. Here are your hosts, Trey and Stephanie Cashin. Good morning. This is uh, Trey. Stephanie couldn't make it today for work, but I've got the faithful and always present and so grateful for that. Thaddeus uh, here. Hey, Trey. Thank you, man. Yeah, thank you for... uh, for being here with us, I always enjoy our conversations. I mean, me too. I know it's always better when my wife's here, but uh, but I enjoy this. So hopefully, there's at least you know one other person out there that might <laughs> that might it might like it. But let's start Definitely. with our let's start with our prayer. Then, in the name of the Father and the Son oh, and the Holy, Holy Spirit, Spirit. Amen. Lord God, from you every family in heaven and on earth takes its name. Father, you are love and life through your Son Jesus Christ, born of woman, and through the Holy Spirit the fountain of divine charity, grant that every family on earth may become for each successive generation a true shrine of life and love. Grant that your grace may guide the thoughts and actions of husbands and wives for the good of their families and of all the families in the world. Grant that the young may find in the family solid support for their human dignity and for their growth in truth and love. Grant that love, strengthened by the grace of the sacrament of marriage, may prove mightier and all the weaknesses and trials through which our families sometimes pass. Through the intercession of the Holy Family of Nazareth, grant that the Church may fruitfully carry out her worldwide mission in the family and through the family. We ask this of you, who is life, truth, and love, with the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Saint John Paul II, pray Pray for for us. us. Holy Family of Nazareth, pray Pray for for us. And Father, and Son, Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. Hey, I, you know, I know that one of my favorite things to do is try to look for like when the Pope or some writing that's relatively new, just to go go see um, what he's saying, what what they're pointing to. I think there was actually another one that I that I downloaded. It might have been Bishop Aquila on human sexuality, which mm-hmm. maybe is another time. But but I would just challenge you if if you like to read, go pull, look up things and see things that are actually what, in this case, the Holy Father is saying. Oftentimes people will pick lines out of it, just like they'll pick lines out of the Bible and make it sound like what they want it to sound or make it, interpret it to mean something that they want to. It's always best to have the whole text in front of you. And so we're going to kind of go through it. I think there's some really cool things to talk about. Some of them are things that we've already talked about, but, but, um, I just think that it's a good habit to search for things, particularly when the Pope is saying this is his message basically to the church. This is not, this is not meant to be written to the Bishop. Sometimes he would do that and then say at the end and, and the lay faithful, I mean, this is flat out just written to you and me and the way it's written. And, and Pope Francis frequently is, I mean, probably the most accessible in terms of the way he writes and the way he communicates, um, you can hear him pretty evidently as you read through this. But anyway, it's just, this is the message of the Holy Father for Lent. I mean, when this, you know, when this is airing, when, as y'all are listening to it, it's, we're just going to be, we're not even going to be a full week into Lent at that time. So, um, yeah. And I think along those same lines, you know, following what the Pope says and listening to what he says and, trying to take it to heart is something that makes us distinctly Catholic and we should try to do that, you know? Right. Exactly. And we, I, we, we have that, the Pope is supposed to be that living voice of, of the Holy spirit speaking to the concerns and the needs of this day and age in light of scripture and in light of church tradition. So, right. And so, so we I think need to listen to him. It is. And we should always defer that. We always, we, again, some people out there listening may not be Catholic the way they're on faith and morals. Um, we believe that the Pope, when he speaks in such a way as to deliver what Christians should believe that he is infallible. Mm-hmm. However, that leaves out a, a lot of 
what he says, and he'll right. even openly say that. And and what what causes problems nowadays is that the Pope will say something, and even if it's not taken out of context, people in the media or others will say, "Well, this is what the church thinks," and and when in fact he's just expressing an opinion. I don't think there's any doctrine here other than he's going through what Lent is about, but I do think there's some challenges to us, and and just. The Pope, well, he's, he's a, a father. He's a bishop. He teaches. He's a, he's a he bishop. Preaches. He's meant to teach, meant to preach. And that should challenge us. Right. And we should listen. And he is, for for us Catholics, and I, even he himself would, the church sees the Pope as actually the head of the entire Christian church. So when he's speaking to brothers and sisters, maybe the only people that might listen to is some segment of the Catholic group, but he is speaking to all Christians mm-hmm. when he's, when he's saying this mm-hmm. and, and he understands himself that way. And every Pope prior to this understands himself to be responsible for mm-hmm. delivering the gospel and the way mm-hmm. you apply it to life to the best of his ability on behalf of Christ, because he is his vicar, right. whether you believe that or not, <laughs> we as Catholics do, but whether you believe it or not, that's the way he sees himself. Right. And so. correct me if I'm wrong on this, even when he speaks on a subject um, that could be classified under faith and morals, that doesn't automatically mean that he's speaking infallibly because no. it has. To, there's a particular there's a way that he has to speak on those. And topics. if you've ever looked, and if you've ever looked at him when they're really trying to say, okay, this has made them, he'll say. I am speaking to all Christians uh, from the seat of Peter as, you know, as Christ's vicar on church. I mean, he, he will, that all Christians must hold this to be true. Right. That's when you know that. So he, right. he could, I mean, he, but we should defer to him across the board. Give him give you know, great respect to, to what he says. Just to listen. And mm-hmm. and see, I don't think there's anything. I think there's some things that would challenge me, you, sure. But um, as any good father would would hopefully do to this, right. to his children. But at the same time, um, we got to really know as Catholics, we need to know it. But as Christians, and I know there's non-Catholics that listen um, to the, to the radio station for sure, maybe to this show, that we need to understand when the Pope is speaking right. as the Pope who is delivering something as you have to hold this. Right. This one I would think is more pastoral, um, Clearly. more pointing towards a good father saying, Hey, you ought to consider this. Right. Right. And, uh, and I think those are fun ones to read because, because you can hear the pastoral sound of his voice. Right. It's not, um, I mean, it, right. And again, and correct me if I'm wrong, not, not even every encyclical that's issued is infallible teaching. No, no, no. There, there's nothing. So, yeah, I mean, again, I'm not an expert on this, but I do know this. An encyclical is not infallible. There may be things in an encyclical that are written that the church, I mean, he must be aware that I'm speaking as this on this particular issue. It's the way I understand it. Mm-hmm. And I believe that's correct. He he, basically needs to be aware himself and express an awareness that what I am saying, what I'm about to say, there is no Christian that can deviate from this. Right. That's <laughs> that's infallible. Right. You know, if he's talking on moral and that uh, on a moral subject or on a matter of faith uh, on a on some tenet of the faith that we that we must hold to be true. But he's also not going to speak infallibly just out of whole cloth. I mean, it's going to come out of this. It's that development of doctrine. Absolutely. Idea. It's going to come out of the magisterium, typically, sacred tradition. Typically that's, and that's, and that's really important to remember. Typically the, not typically all, almost always when, when something like that's done, there is, there is first some sort of challenge that is, a, that is occurring or has occurred or is being perceived by the Pope led by the Holy Spirit to say this is something that needs to be formalized or expressed right. more clearly or more precisely because if I don't do this, there seems to be some error that, that could cause problems down the road. So you're right. He's not pulling things out of a hat. Right. Um, now, it may not have been expressed exactly like he's expressing it, but... 
always the church is the guardian of the faith that's been handed on and the development of that positive faith, the positive faith, right. It's what's kind of left in the hands. Revelation stopped, you know, with the death of the last apostle. I mean, public revelation stopped. So we know that that's case, but guess what? I mean, that, that happened in roughly 90 AD. I mean, we're talking, we're 2000 years almost, uh, you know, from that point of time, God, we as Christians, I mean, we as Catholics believe that he left a church because he said he would, it's my church. I, I left a church uh, that will be built on the rock who is Peter and that, and that Pope Francis is in that line today mm-hmm. speaking on his behalf, but he's a human being. He's not a God. He's not even a demigod. He's a human being. We just believe that Christ protects him when he is speaking definitively on, on a matter of faith and morals, when he recognizes himself as doing that and is actually putting himself out there as I'm speaking in that way. Yep. So he could be speaking in an encyclical. He could be speaking on a plane, which oftentimes causes the flurry when he's just talking, right. when he's just talking and a question is asked that he would not even see himself as speaking as the Pope in that way. I mean, he's speaking as the Pope because that's who he is, but he's, when he's talking, he's not thinking, okay, now I am now, you know, uttering something that everybody must hold to. Right. And so that's really important. I think a lot of confusion occurs because of lots because of that, both Agreed. in terms of the Catholic inside the Catholic church and those who, who see him. So I'm not diminishing that, and I'm not trying to clarify. I mean, he does speak on behalf of Christ. Most of the time, we should look at him as most of what he says is going to be something that's already in line with something that's already been taught, which really all of this is. There's no nothing new here. He's just extending it to today. Right. And that's how most of the ta- teaching would be. There's certainly not, not a doctrinal issue here that needs to be addressed. This is pastoral. He's trying to lead his sheep <laughs> down a path, maybe, hey, you know, a little bit of a staff recorrecting, like, hey, you need to go over here. You need to avoid doing this, and you need to look out for, I mean, just like any day. Right. He even care. says in the second paragraph, with this message, I would like again this year to help the entire church experience this time of grace anew. With joy and in truth, absolutely. And that's clearly that's pastoral, pastoral, language. and it's and the, and that's that's most of what he's doing. He's he's trying to lead the sheep, but do see there that he does say try to help the entire church. And when he says the entire church, he doesn't mean just the Roman Catholic Church. He's right. talking about the entire church, everybody who is um, either very clearly within the within the bounds of the Catholic Church to anybody who claims Jesus as their Lord and Savior and has given their life to them. He sees himself as that. Mm-hmm. So anyway, anything else you th- on that before? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's dive in because I think one of the, fir- the first in the very beginning, even actually before he mentions that, um, there's a, there is something that I think kind of springboards off of what we – kind of rally around here on the mystery of parenthood is this idea of sacrament and sacramental. He says, he, he says this, that God in his providence offers us each year, the season of Lent as a, and he quotes a sacramental sign of our conversion. That's important to unpack <laughs> what, what he means by that, because it does change. It's a way of looking at things. So a sacramental sign, not not to be confused with a sacrament, but when he says a sacramental sign, there's a visible outward sign, something that's tangible that we do, that, that we can notice, that others can notice, that is a sign of our conversion. What's, our, what's a conversion? Conversion is a turning around, away from sin, t- back towards God. And so everything about this time of year is meant to signify our need to convert, to turn around. And he goes on further, you know, he goes on further and says, Lent summons us. I love this. And I'll make a point on this because I think it's important. The next line is Lent summons us and enables us to come back to the Lord wholeheartedly. So there's this sense of repentance, you know, of turning around, 
heading back towards God wholeheartedly, and that this time of grace that he's saying both summons us, calls us, hey, turn around, and then enables us. So first, sacramental sign, outward signs that we do. So what are those things? Well, I mean, yesterday, if you know, you went to an Ash Wednesday, there were it was replete with with that. If if you live the day as uh, recommended or required by the church with regard to a day of fasting, one full meal, there was something different about we're saying that we are that the things that we need in this world are not the only thing we can live without these because our ultimate life is somewhere beyond here. So that's a, again, that's a sign. The ashes on our head reminding us that we're going to die and be judged. <laughs> and this, this life is coming to an end. So everything about yesterday and everything about Lent is meant to be an outward sign of our need to convert, to turn around. And um, I think it's important to remember that, all of us are called to conversion, the on, ongoing conversion throughout. But the next thing on the point is, is and, he, and if you listen to him and if you're Catholic, so the, one of my favorite lines in the Bible is the law came through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We live in a time that grace is available, but truth is. And I, and I see, this is Trey Cashin, Lent summons us by truth. By pointing back to us and saying, you are going to die, something is going to happen, and we need to think about that and how we live so that we can change the things that are leading us away from our true home, which is heaven. This is, we're pilgrims here. So there's that truth, but then the enabling is what we believe as Christians, grace enables us, it raises us up, it gives us a participation in God's life that allows us to become more and more what he created us to be. So we're not doing it on our own. And again, as good Catholics, we need to always point that because I think a lot of, a lot of people will look at us, particularly with our cross on our head and, and say, Oh, you're there. You are Catholics. You're going and doing stuff. Well, yes, we should do stuff, but it's pointing us to the fact that we need God's grace and that God's grace is ultimately the only way. I mean, we have to cooperate with it. We have something to do, but separate from God's grace, we're lost. I mean, that's what Lent is saying to us. And he says here later, I don't know if you have any thoughts on that, but I do like the truth is what summons us. The truth about who God is, about who we are, about the, our sinfulness, our being lost. But grace is that it enables us because he came and showed us as perfect man and God what we're capable of with God's grace. Yeah. So, so he takes his, his, uh, his cue, he says right. for this, for the talk, yes. um, is from Matthew 24, 12, which will be our verse for the way, by the way. Yeah. Good. Nice. Nice. <laughs> Matthew 24, 12, because of the increase of iniquity, the love of many will grow cold. And he says, False prophets would lead people astray, and the love that is the core of the gospel would grow cold in the hearts of many. And so then he has a section on who are these false prophets, what are they, what do they do, and what does it look like when of the believers grow cold. And then he has a final section where he offers some uh, how the, the three pillars of Lent, fasting, almsgiving, and prayer, are um, solutions to that or um, medicine. To right. Treat and that's, that. and that's, and his whole thing, I mean, if you, you know, if you say the prayer of the Holy Spirit, you know, kindle the fire of God's love, this, this contrary is this coldness that is, that can become, you know, us turning away, you know, turning away from those who are in need, turning away from those who need our help. And so I think it's, I think it's interesting what he what he points to here with regard to the to the false prophets who cause this coldness of heart, um, and let's see, let's it's, he says uh, they can appear. He gives really kind of two two types. I, this is so Pope Francis like you know yeah. they can appear as quote unquote snake charmers, you know who who manipulate human emotions in order to enslave others and lead them where they would 
have them go? How many of God's children are mesmerized by momentary pleasures, mistaking them for true happiness? And then he goes, you know, he just goes on and says, how many go through life believing that they are sufficient unto themselves and end up entrapped by loneliness? And I think that's, again, pointing to the fact that we're meant to be in communion with others. There is a part of it. There is a part of it that suffering's part of life, you know, that we're not supposed to chase momentary pleasures as there's nothing wrong with, you know, a good meal here and there, but we, but we can get caught up chasing those. And like a snake charmer, when I think, I mean, what I try to do when I hear him say this is in my mind, at least conjure up, okay, what do snake charmers do? I mean, if you've ever watched a snake charmer, they usually have really nice music and, and, and the snake becomes really not like itself. That, I mean, that's what I think of the, the snake who could kill you with a bite becomes so mesmerized. And he uses that word by the music or the action of the snake charmer that they kind of lose sight of who they are and what they are because they're so pleasured by that sound. I think that's what he's saying here is that we can become less of who we are and it by getting caught up in some pleasure that's in front of us and, and be charmed by that. And that people like to, I mean, all you have to turn, I mean, I'm not, I don't know what he's thinking of specifically here with snake charmers, but I mean, I, I think you just have to watch a few commercials. <laughs> yeah. That's it. actually, I mean, goes to my point I was going to make of, you know, he writes mesmerized by momentary pleasures entranced by the dream of wealth, uh, go through life believing that they are sufficient unto themselves. And I, I think there that a lot of times people who have take issue with the Holy Father sometimes is they want him to spell out what he's, what he's meaning there about. and like really, you know, come down on people. And that's just, it's not what he's going to do. He's going to, he's going to, set out these these areas of human existence that are clearly problems in a lot of different ways. Right. And he's going to leave it to your reason and intelligence to know that you know what I'm talking about here. Right. Like if you're if you're living within the um if you're living out your Christian faith truly and if you're living honestly according to, you know, reason you know what I'm talking about here. I don't need to yes. become condemnatory. Right. And and I think I think that I think what he what he does by not pointing them out, um, and what he's asking by doing that is number one, I think I think that when he would write something like this, if I was writing this to my kids, I would say a prayer for the Holy Spirit to convict the, whoever's reading it of themselves of how this applies to them. Right, right. I'm sure he's I'm sure he prayed something along those lines just as a good father. I find that most myself and, and you and most people, if you read this, I know that the, that the initial thing is, well, he's talking about these people or he's talking about that person or see whatever. I think really what he's wanting, what he's wanting us to do is point back at ourselves mm -hmm. and, and look at that. Yeah. And that's why he leaves it in general. Mm-hmm. Um, because we all love to get behind somebody and say, yeah, see, you're the bad guy, you know, and point and point at them. Yep. And that's not really what he's doing. And, and I think he's leaving it broad enough to where he is allowing for the things that bother us. And when I read something, when I'm doing it well and following things that bother me that he says, I think it's reasonable to go back and ask, why is it bothering me? Right. <laughs> is there something about me? Because that might be the Holy Spirit saying, hey, you might want to listen to this yourself. So um, snake charmers uh, are the first one. The second one, uh, false prophets can be charlatans. And again, that's in quotes, who offer easy, immediate solutions to suffering that soon prove utterly useless. And he, in this one, he's talking about the panacea of drugs, of disposable relationships, of easy but dishonest gains, you know, um, ensnared in, in a thoroughly quote-unquote, virtual existence in which relationships appear quick and straightforward only to um, have no real meaning. And, I, you know, it, 
there's like these swindlers in peddling things that have no real. I mean, he here's the image on. <laughs> What's a charlatan? A charlatan is somebody who sells something that's not worth anything, mm-hmm. right? Or, or you know, if he's selling it for a dime, as I've had a grandfather tell me once, you can bet it's not worth ten cents. <laughs> that's what a charlatan. Uh, that's what a charlatan does. But I think. Um, he goes on, and again, you mentioned this before the show, and I think it's important. He very frequently, and I, and it's interesting to me because on one hand, people perceive him as being this pope who's always, you know, you know, uh, the the collage pope, the mural pope, you know, like the going back to the '60s pope. That uh, I hate for anybody out there. I hope I haven't offended. <laughs> I grew up and was mar- I was I was born in that and raised kind of in the you know Jesus loves you and he does. Don't get me wrong, but no sense of of that. He always points to something that a lot of people don't want to talk about: the father of lies. Mm-hmm. You know, and he's he's actually in order to confine the human heart, the devil. He specifically names him as such. Mm-hmm. So there's not a part of him. You know, there's a, there is plenty out there who want to say God is love. Everybody's going to be fine. There really is no hell. There really is no devil. He's not doing that. <laughs> he's not. I mean, no, multiple times, but certainly here, in a, in a pastoral letter, he is doing that. And I and I like this. You know, he goes through the devil has always presented evil is good and falsehood is truth. That's what when you see and, and I think, you know, for most of us, if we there are things that jump out like, the you know, I've, I've seen things where, you know, there are people who are, say, pro-abortion or whatever, who were super concerned and will go, you know, through whatever they have to to have. Uh, to be concerned about the treatment of a dog or something like that. Not that we should, that we don't want to do that, but to have one of those as being that's worth dying for, worth fighting for. And the other one on the flip opposite, that the animal is worth something, but the, but the child in a womb is not, that is really somewhat incompatible. It's incoherent to be honest. And that's when you know that falsehood <laughs> is being put out as a, as a truth. And so, um, so anyway, he goes on and says that that's why each of us is called to peer into our heart, um, peer into our heart to see, I'm sorry, I lost it. Peer into our heart, uh, to to see see if if we we are falling prey to the lies of these false prophets. We must learn to look closely beneath the surface and to recognize uh, what leaves a good and lasting mark on our hearts because it comes from God and is truly our benefit. You know, I could have said the checks in the mail, Pope, <laughs> because because what he's saying there is who I'm really talking to is you who are reading this. Yep, just as, you, mean, just as you alluded well, to Well, I'm just saying because that is ultimately what all um, all conversion is. And the thing is, is that... He's not pointing a finger. He's just he's just pointing out these are real things. And I could go down this list of, you know, the you know maybe not the panacea drugs, but I mean the the other things that you can get caught up in a TV show or whatever that eat up that eat up time and um, propose things as true that aren't true. So anyway, the fruit of that, the fruit of falling to these false prophets, to these charlatans and snake charmers is what he's addressing here, the coldness of heart. In contrast to the fire that is God's love. And we're meant, again, I think, and I'm stepping a little bit and adding Trey Cash in here, but I think what what he's pointing to is, as images of God, we're meant to, to be on fire. We're meant to do that. And that coldness, as the opposite of that, is is ultimately when we have lost that. And I, you know, I read, um, I read Dante's Inferno <laughs> back and I had a great professor on that. Um, and I know I knew this and I know it's been pointed to, but in a place that is typically viewed as a place of fire and brimstone, hell, he on the contrary, <laughs> says that Satan himself 
pictures that pictures is pictured as being on a throne of ice and he's actually, you know, frozen in loveless isolation. He's just by himself frozen, completely cold. And that totally smacks against what, you know, when we think about uh, fire and I think, I think he's trying to play off of that to point towards that, that ultimately the devil wants us to be cold and isolated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, you know, we might well ask ourselves how it happens that charity can turn cold within us. What are the signs that indicate that our love is beginning to cool? And again, as a good teacher, he's pointing to now he's going to start saying, here are the things that, that cause us to grow cold. And the first one he brings up is what destroys charity. Charity is the fire of God's love. What destroys that fire? Greed for money, the love of money. The root of all evil. It's the root of all evil. Very important to clarify, and I think he's he doesn't necessarily clarify it here, but I know he means it. Money itself is not objectively Bad or good. Bad or good. It's just a, it's a thing. What he's saying is the love of money, greed for it, wanting it more than you want anything else, is one of the first things that destroys charity. Um, now, what I, th- what I, th- oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. What I find so compelling about this paragraph here is that he takes this paragraph and he aims it right at the supposed pro-life versus social justice divide in the oh, wow. in the church. Yeah, go, because go what does he do in a couple? Because right now, those ardent pro-lifers are reading that and they might be recoiling from what he says. But just two sentences later, he says, all this leads to violence against anyone he we think is a threat to our own certainties the unborn child, the elderly and infirm, the migrant, the alien among us, or our neighbor who does not live up to our expectations. And right there, he brings those two wings wow, yeah. of social teaching right, right together. Great point. Because so much of, he's he's arguing that um, abortion, for instance, the root of that is people's greed for for money, for material comfort, material security, certainty. Right. And that's the thing we all, you know, if you just turn on the commercials, you know, the, I think they're gone now, but you know, what's your number, you know, the retirement number, mm. you know, what you walking around with how much money do you have to have right. to just be able to do whatever you want the rest of your life. I think he's done a great job of kind of pointing to the fact that, that that really shouldn't be um, the ultimate Goal. I'm not. That doesn't mean don't plan. It doesn't mean don't do whatever. But we do tend to look at other people as as threats to who we are and what we have. Yeah. And he's trying to point us away from that. And I guess at the root of that is they're threats to my livelihood. They're threats to what I have. And so, anyway. Oh, I know that I fall into that as a father. I see. I turn my children into instruments all the time for my own. Um, well, I don't think that's pride, human. right? I and mean, I and I look and I look, look at them as how are they getting in the way of me achieving what I what I want to achieve? So, yeah, and that's you know yeah. that's a great point. That is that is a normal and, and as parents and we we can all do that. I've seen it myself and in myself, much like you. The interesting thing is, and I think he would, while he may not address, he doesn't address this specifically, is that is part of the lie that it's a, it's a, I need to protect what I have and what I, what I, what brings pleasure to me and anybody who's taking that away from me or could potentially uh, do that, then they're a threat when in fact what Christ reveals is that we're meant to give ourselves away to those people. And so those people who are threats in, in that way of looking are actually the means through which God is actually calling us to be more like him, to give ourselves away. So the infant could be extended to the three-year-old or the 10-year-old right. or whomever. 
um, as not a threat, but as an opportunity, as a person who's been given to Mm -hmm. us for us to give ourselves away Mm -hmm. to. And that's again part of the charlatan state. And our and our born children are are in that neighbor who does not live up to our expectations all the time. Right. Absolutely. And all what, the time. And and again, the devil is always saying, "Let's point at the other person. They're the bad person." <laughs> when in fact, what does the gospel tell us? None of us deserve to go to heaven. We all deserve to go to hell. We did nothing to gain this. Jesus Christ came and died for us that we might have eternal life mm-hmm. with him. Mm-hmm. What did he do? He forgave us even though we're not worthy of forgiveness <laughs> in a sense. I mean, we don't deserve to be forgiven. Right. And I think that, that again, it's that like you said, it's pride that says, hey, well, you know, I'm doing better than that person or that person needs to get off their <laughs> whatever and do what they've got to do. And he's calling us to question that, I think. Um, anyway, I don't know if you know what else. It was interesting. He goes on and, and talks about um, evangel- about the joy of the gospel. Um, and he talks to me, he described the most evident signs of this lack of love. And it says selfishness and spiritual sloth, sterile pessimism, the temptation to self-absorption, constant warring among ourselves, and the worldly mentality that makes makes us concerned only for appearances and thus lessens our missionary zeal. He could like go right to the those are general, but they, they yeah. they're, they're kind of sweeping. I, I mean, I can find myself in multiples of those. Um, and I think that's what his intention is, um, is to make sure that we understand these are the things, but they're all, again, like we were just talking about, it's selfishness. It's, it's pessimism, sterile pessimism. Now, I guess sterile pessimism, I don't know what he, how he'd define it. I would define it as just having a negative outlook with no... Because sometimes the negative, the pessimism, can actually, in a sense, invigorate us, actually get us going to try to address that, which is, I would think, sterile pessimism, in my thought, is it's lost and there's nothing we can do about it. So I'm just, it's just, that's just bad. I mean, there's no sense of we're engaged. Selfishness is that way. Self-absorption is that way. It's all self looking back at ourselves and what we either have or don't have and, and really limiting our, in our own mind, ability to impact the way things are. I don't know. That's Trey Cash and that's not Pope Francis, but I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. What did you have something else? Were you, um, I just, I liked what you said about, um, nobody being owed heaven made me think of Romans chapter five and Paul writes for Christ while we were still helpless yet died at the appointed time for the ungodly. Indeed, only with difficulty does one die for a just person, but God proves his love for us. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Indeed, if while we were enemies, enemies of God in our sinfulness, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more once reconciled, Will we be saved by his life? So that's that's Romans chapter five. And we need to remember that. We, and again, this is kind of a little bit of a sidebar, but I think frequently um, Catholics, either because they don't explain it very well or what, are we do not believe that we work ourselves to ha- work our way to heaven. <laughs> we are not taught as Catholics that we work our way to heaven. That if I just do good enough, I'll I'll get in, right. earn my way in. That's not, we We as Catholics, as all true Christians, believe that we're saved by grace. I mean, they, 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 it, separate from God loving us so much that he sent his only begotten son for us to give us the grace. But what we do believe is that we have to cooperate with that grace, that mm-hmm. God, God provides it to us through no merit of our own, but he asked us to participate with it and, and to move forward. And there are things that we have to do, which kind of springboards us into kind of the way he ends this, which is, again, 
and I, I, I had a brief conversation with one of my kids to, to make people understand, you know, when we get them ashes on our head or when we are praying or when we're almsgiving or when we're fasting, we've got to remember that it is not like, hey, God, look at me. <laughs> uh, look at how good I'm doing. Um, I should be good. And all that, you know, that person that's in my house, you know, they, they already, they already cheated. You know, it's not, it's not, and there can be a way that we can get proud about those type of things. I mean, be proud of our ability to just pull up ourselves by our bootstraps. But I think his answer to all these things, self-absorption, warring against ourselves, worldly mentality that that has us conserved only for appearances, um, all of those things, he comes back and he points to um, the church and that Lent, that Lent in this season provides a soothing remedy of prayer, almsgiving, and fasting, kind of the three pillars of, of that. So using his words, be, by devoting more time to prayer, we enable our hearts to root out our secret lies and forms of self-deception. I find that interesting because that, that, that is not the first thing that comes to mind when you when I pray. I mean, that's the first thing when I'm trying to tell somebody, pray. He's pointing out that that prayer is actually something that helps root out our secret lies and forms of self de- deception. Do you find that odd? To me, that's you know, prayer is that which unites us more closely with God. Now that these are true things, but I find that as being a very pointed uh, and precise part of prayer that he's actually pointing to now that this is a time of prayer, not, um, simply, I mean, he's basically saying when you're, you, you need to take more time to do the examine, to do an examination of conscience this Lent, right? Do it. If you're not, if you're doing it once a month, do it once a week. If you're doing it once a week, do it every day. Right. If you're doing it every day, do it in the morning and at night. Right. Like, do it more often. He's what, So he's saying prayer should should be not just saying our prayers, but that we should be, particularly during Lent, focusing on what, how are we lying to ourselves? Mm-hmm. How are, how what are our secret lies between me and God? And 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 then this is important too, because you know us Catholics can be really sold on the you know Catholic guilt, right? He doesn't finish the sentence with that. He's, he extends it and he says, and then define consola- the consolation that God offers. And that's the great tension of, of the Catholic way of looking at life. We are at once, which St. Paul says, we are at once sinners, but we are loved <laughs> by love itself, by God himself. And that we have to not say, well, he loves us so much that he doesn't care about our sinfulness, but he loves us in spite of our sinfulness and is saying, don't stay where you are. Because the last line in that, in that section says, this God who, who offers us consolation is our father and he wants us to live life well. That's a very simple statement, but listen to that. God loves us so much that he wants us to live life well like any good father Mm -hmm. and the extent to which I want that for my kids is merely some very small, very weak outward expression or manifestation of as the image of God, of what God wants. God wants his children to live well. He doesn't want them to live in the muck. He doesn't want them to live in that. So we believe that there's no way to come out of it other than God's grace and grace not only allows us to come out, but actually enables us. So it summons us out and then it enables us to actually begin to live life well, but it begins with an examination of conscience. Mm-hmm. It begins with looking at, I know you got some and something in my, my Roman missile and uh, the little guideline in the back for a good confession. It says, and, and I, I just think this is really marvelous for me. I've been, pondering this a lot lately. Since the last time I went to confession, I, I came back and read this again. It says, um, contrition is the beginning 
and the heart of conversion, of that evangelical metanoia, which brings the person back to God like the prodigal son returning to his father and which has in the sacrament of penance its visible sign and which perfects attrition. But contrition is the beginning of conversion. It's the heart of conversion. To be converted, to to turn yourself over to God, you have to be contrite. You have to be sorry for your sinfulness. Right. And and we don't, we, and we don't we're in a culture that, that doesn't make that do, connection. And the culture is not, because listen, I mean, it, it, there is some logic in, in this, not just, just that if, if you, our human nature fights against that. It does. Too, not against, just it, doesn't the culture. Want to, it wants to deny the sin. It, our human nature says, Oh, that's not really that. It's not big really that deal. bad. It's not that big of a deal. Everybody else does it. It's not. What's the need of a savior. If you don't, have something to be saved from if we can talk ourselves and we you mentioned it in the last show but it is something that john paul ii has said over and over i mean john paul ii said over and over is that one of the biggest problems we have mm-hmm. in this era which has continued is the loss of a sense of sin mm-hmm. christianity is not saying hey don't worry about it christianity is saying hey, hey worry about it call what it is call it sinful and then entrust yourself to God's mercy and allow his grace to change that. That's what Lent is, which right. is why go to confession. <laughs> go to confession. Use this time. There, there are multiple. I'm sure wherever you are, certainly in our area, multiples upon multiples of, of ways to get to get the confession. Again, a sacrament. That's a sign of God's mercy, which starts with what? Contrition. <laughs> Are identifying those things, our secret lies, as he's saying here, our uh, ways of self-deception, and then telling it to Jesus, who is made present to us in the person of the priest, and to hear that absolution that is coming from from God Himself. So. Beautiful, I think. Mm-hmm. So prayer is that. But I find that it's interesting. That's what he's focused on. The second one, I know we're going to, is almsgiving. And, it, you know, he sets us free from greed and helps us to regard our neighbor as, as a brother and sister. I don't know about you, but I mean, almsgiving, I'd never heard it before. I mentioned before, Father Wade Menezes. Menezes. Mm-hmm. I've been watching him forever. I've just never been able to, to pronounce his name. But he, he went on and said that almsgiving, I'm trusting him here. Sounds accurate. The church sees almsgiving as the 14 acts of mercy. So the spiritual mm. acts of mercy and, really the, and the and the corporal, the works of mercy. Yeah, yeah. And so to look at those as opportunities, you might be surprised at the one, at the, the almsgiving that you may already be doing. Right. Um, burying the dead, you know, is one. So the funerals. Um Instructing the encouraging, I think encouraging the the doubtful. I don't have it all in front of me, but I mean, mm-hmm. there's lots of ways that you can reach comforting out, and the get, comforting the afflicted, being there for people who are who've experienced a loss. But I just would like to challenge you to to do that. But again, what's he trying to do is what the church is trying to do is get our eyes off of ourself, other than to notice us as as that and begin the the sinfulness comes from being self absorbed from looking out for number one. What they're trying to do is we have to identify that, but then the way to overcome that in the future is to look out to the other, to the brother and sister in need, who needs a meal, who needs a place to stay, who needs somebody to just pull up alongside them and give them a hug. That's what almsgiving is. Um, certainly giving money. And then and the last thing is that um, he mentioned as we get there is fasting. And it's funny, it says fasting weakens our tendency to violence. It disarms us and becomes um, an important opportunity for growth. Um, It allows us to experience what the destitute, again, what the destitute and the starving are experiencing. What's he, I mean, I think the theme that as I'm going through this, all of these things are beginning to say, okay, what's causing my sinfulness? Me focusing on myself, on what I get, on my pleasure, on that to the detriment of or to the exclusion of those people who are actually in need of me. Mm. And I think that that's what he's trying to point us to is that these prayer focusing on 
self-deception and lie, secret lies, and fasting and almsgiving are all ways of uniting us more closely, not only with God, but actually with those others who need us and to become more Mm -hmm. unified with them. So I would just challenge, I'm challenging myself, you know, to really take up those things, to listen to what he has to say, read it, pull it up. I mean, all you have to do is just say uh, Lent 2018, Pope Francis, and it's going to pop up. It's going to be his letter. You can read it. It's nothing, you don't need a theology degree to do it. But what he wants is, he wants, the last section is the fire of Easter, that this is preparation for becoming on fire and allowing God and the resurrected son to live more fully in us, to open up a space so that he can come and live inside of us, that we might go out, not cold, but on fire for others, on fire for Jesus, on fire for God and on fire for all those that God puts in our way, in, in our, you know, our children, etc. Anyway, um, we're at the end here. Hopefully that was helpful. I, I always love talking with that. Too fast, too fast. Always too fast. But um, anyway, pray for us. We'll be praying for you. Uh, Steph will be back on uh, soon after that. But um, always remember, um, pray, <laughs> parent with a purpose, and prepare for God to amaze you. And he will. And so teach your kids these things. Oh, and also, yeah, memory verse is Matthew twenty four twelve. Matthew twenty four twelve. Because um, it's sin that causes uh, us to grow cold. Don't be cold. Be on fire. Stay warm. Bye. Thank you for listening to this local production of Red Sea Catholic Radio. Tune in next week at the same time to hear Trey and Stephanie Cashin share more on the mystery of parenthood. 